Hello and welcome to the December edition of the EMJ podcast. I'm Simon Carley and today I'm going to be taking you through the highlights of the journal this month. Now, I'd probably like to persuade you that I did all of this work myself, but actually it's not true. Um, most of this was done by Simon Smith, who's one of our other associate editors, who's put together the highlights going into the Christmas season and the depths of winter, which who knows how that's going to pan out for us here in the Northern Hemisphere. I think I might move to Australia, actually. It sounds a lot better at the moment and certainly a little bit warmer. But there you go. What can we tell you to make you all excited and enthused about academic emergency medicine at this time? Well, there's quite a lot going on, actually. And we're going to talk to you about the, the season's highlights. And, well, this is going to kick off with a, quite a few things about opioid prescribing. And Simon Smith points out that anybody who's familiar with the Victorian literature will know about the sort of portrayal of the use of opium, especially laudanum by many authors. And possibly the most famous and controversial was Thomas de Quincey, who in 1821 described his experience of opiate use, initially to relieve pain in his Confessions of an Opium Eater. He also describes his addiction to and recovery from opium abuse. And there's a nice quote here. Um, opium had long ceased to found its empire on spells of pleasure. It was solely by the tortures connected with the attempt to abjure it that kept its hold. And that's by Thomas de Quincey. So, this sort of problem about ease of access to opiates is not really new. I mean, this goes back to the widespread use prior to the 1868 Pharmacy Act in Britain. And in the modern era, despite restrictions on the legal use of these drugs, there's now lots of stuff, um, particularly come from the US, about the opioid epidemic. And we as physicians are obviously potentially part of that problem and also hopefully the solution. But it's pretty obvious that there's a lot of historical similarities about what's going on now, um, including the use of legislation used to reduce risk, and to what happened in history. And as always, we can learn a lot by looking at the past. So a couple of papers around the prescription of opioids within emergency departments in the journal this month, and they are well worth a read. I mean, the, the atrogenic harm of prescribed opioids is a growing international concern both for us as medical professionals, but also for the public. And you see this regularly featured in the news media. And as I say, it's predominantly been over in the US, but there's certainly much more of it now coming into Europe and, and the UK as well. So a couple of papers. Firstly, one in North Carolina. A government act has been brought into law to effect a reduction of prescription of opioids for acute pain, in particular reduction in the length of prescription to under five days which hopefully doesn't sort of cause much addiction. And um, Perry et al. have looked at the effects of this legislation on prescribing practice. And whilst this law appears to have been effective in reducing the prescription of opioids for acute pain, the same is not true of opioid prescription for non-pain indications, and actually specifically anti-tussive, anti-cough use. And the authors suggest that this gap in the legislation could and should be addressed within local organisation policies. And I suppose one of the things you've got to think about there is that you know, if people just want to get opioids and you can find a reason to prescribe them, maybe not for the legitimate reasons, then people will find loopholes and go around. We've got to be careful about this. And maybe that's a political and a legal thing, but it's certainly something that we as emergency physicians should be aware of. The second paper is a quality improvement report in which Roman and Fleming report a project to reduce codeine prescriptions within an emergency department in Scotland. And they neatly describe both the methodologies used and the challenges that can be faced when attempting a quality improvement project in this area. One interesting challenge was that the cost and the legal restrictions meant reducing the number of tablets given out to patients, and that proved unachievable. And you wonder if legislation like that in North Carolina would change this. It's a bit difficult to know, but, you know. And both papers provide sobering statistics on the opioid epidemic and should challenge prescribers in emergency departments to consider their prescription practice. 
And I think that's true. Codeine is a very interesting drug, of course. Remember that many patients can't metabolize it properly anyway. They either metabolize it too quickly or not at all or very, very slowly. So it's probably not the greatest of drugs anyway, although it is widely used in emergency departments. It's certainly not one of my favorites, but I can see that it may have a place. But we need to be cautious with it, certainly potentially a drug of abuse. And these papers really talk to us about that. Then uh, away from opiates, looking to the future, looking at different or new technologies or maybe just different technologies or just new adoptions of old technologies into the ED. There's interesting a couple of short reports on the use of EEGs in the emergency department. Given that we have quite a lot of difficulties identifying non-convulsive stasis epilepticus or NCSE and the poor outcomes associated with this, there's hopefully a new technology that might be helpful. So there's a paper by Simmer. Um, looking at the feasibility and clinical utility of point-of-care EEG, um, looking at that in a paediatric population. Small study, fair enough, but the results are quite interesting, actually, quite encouraging. Increased identification of non-convulsive status epilepticus and positive feedback from attending staff in terms of ease of use. And if you're listening to this podcast and you've had as much experience as me, you'll probably know that we haven't necessarily managed this group of patients fantastically well in the past and certainly I've ended up intubating and ventilating a few who've ended up on ITU and I know that I'm not the only one who's done that. Maybe if we could avoid that, that would be a good thing. And other, clearly other aspects of uh, treatment as well. In the other paper, Wright et al, another small study looks at the effects of bedside EEG in the emergency department on the clinical management of non-convulsive state epilepticus. And uh, I think Anybody who's interested in this area uh, might find that this, you know, looking at these two small studies, it might be something which could actually be quite useful for us. And I think, again, speaking to some of my colleagues around the world, emergency medicine does have access to EEGs in other health economies. So maybe it's something that we should look at in the UK as well. Now, going on to look at uh, prediction scores, of which we've had a lot of papers in the journal about the use of um, prediction scores and risk scores. And the methodology around those is getting better over time. The editor's choice this month is actually the study by Veldhus, I think I pronounced that correctly, examining the effectiveness of early warning scores in predicting deterioration in patients with COVID. No spoilers in this. You can have a look and read the paper yourself. There's two other studies in the EMJ also looking at risk scores, which might be of interest to those who enjoy prediction. Spagnolello um, et al. compare the QSOFA and the CURB-65 in patients with respiratory tract infections. And Pernaskowski et al. look at pre-hospital news scoring and how the predictive accuracy for mortality changes with the age of the patient. For me, I'm always interested in looking at risk score as in the ED. I think they can be useful, and obviously there is something in, in doing risk scoring. But as an emergency physician, I'm most interested in the scores that tell me what I've actually got to do. And I'm also really interested in the scores that actually tell me and identify the patients in whom an intervention might make a difference. Scores which just tell me that everybody's going to die and nothing could be done about it are kind of useful from a population sort of studying effect, but they're not actually as useful to me as an emergency physician. I want scores to identify the patients where we can make a difference. I'm not sure that mentality's got through to, to the people who study that on a regular basis. There's actually also a really good editorial, which Simon Smith doesn't mention in the primary survey, but it's a really good editorial by Adrian Boyle looking around the issues of sepsis and screening and, and whether or not we've gone a bit mad about giving antibiotics to everybody on the basis of a couple of random scores. That's really worth a read because it is a little bit controversial, but I'm kind of on the same page as, as he is in that 
we need to be careful about particularly the use of antibiotics and giving them out too readily and too widely uh, around the world because we will end up with antibiotic resistance and that will be a whole world of pain. So the whole idea around, particularly as Adrian's saying, around the, the use of the word sepsis and whether that means sepsis or septic shock or whether it's actually just another name for what is in many people just an end-of-life event is really interesting and definitely worth a bit of your time. On that note, I suppose, um, or related, you know, whether the sepsis is just an, an end game, um, like pneumonia used to be the old man's friend um, for some of our patients. There are some papers um, looking at our older population um, this month and uh, three papers on the care of the older person in the emergency department. We've got a trend, increasing use of emergency departments by older patients. And hopefully you're interested in that sort of thing, because that is our core business these days. Um, the Reader's Choice this month is by Shreer et al., um, it's a paper comparing the Rockwood Clinically Frail Score performed by nursing staff at triage on admission to hospital and the predictive ability of the triage clinical frailty score. Interestingly, actually, there's less agreement on this than I would have thought. I'll dig into the details on this one, but actually there is a significant difference between the, the CFS done at triage and on admission. So something's not quite right there. We need to dig into that and maybe think about it in a bit more detail. There's another paper in the journal around um, elderly care, looking at a paper by Takahashi, and that's maybe a little less surprising. That study looks at the association between increasing age and intubation complication rates, and increasing the age of the patient was associated with an increased risk of complications, primarily post-intubation hypotension. And maybe that's not that surprising, um, but it does alert us all to consider the risk and be vigilant for post-intubation complications in this group of patients. And the third paper in our elderly care section this month is about the review of reviews, a meta-summary, a meta-meta-summary, or something to do with Facebook this week. Yeah, that was that going around on Twitter, wasn't it? If you now do an analysis of Facebook posts of old, have you done a meta-analysis? It's a terrible joke, but quite funny. So it's a meta-summary of the evidence for interventions to improve outcomes for older patients in EDs. The study notes that there are inconsistencies in the description and assessment of healthcare interventions, and no single intervention was identified as superior. However, improved outcomes were noted when interventions were begun within the emergency department and continued when the patient leaves the department. So what's striking here is that the metrics for determining improvement in care were usually service metrics rather than patient-centred outcomes, which is not ideal. So, is that right? Personally, process will tell us how to organise our systems, but actually what we really want is papers which tell us about patient-centred outcomes. So we need to see more of that in this kind of literature, and that may be one of the takeaways from that paper. So finally, a last paper so recommended by Simon this month is one by Robson et al., which looks at staff attitudes to health promotion within the emergency department. Interesting paper this looks at how staff perceptions of both the practicality of doing health promotion and the delivery of health promotion activities within the emergency department might work. So screening and brief interventions within the emergency department are areas where controversy does exist. Hopefully this paper will stimulate readers' thoughts on practice in this area. Personally, I think it's a really interesting area. It's something that we've talked about and presentations on and, and done blogging on in the past. And there is a group of patients who turn up in the emergency department who don't access um, healthcare in any other way. And there are certain groups who don't particularly go to any other form of health um, practitioner, notably young men. And there is potentially the opportunity to do health promotion in that group who don't get opportunity to get it elsewhere. So personally, and this is not in the paper, personally, I've always thought that they should have a little screening booth 
in the waiting room, not staffed by emergency medicine people necessarily, but by somebody else. So a little public health intervention. So people are hanging around in the emergency department for ages, sadly. Why not do a little bit of health promotion with them while they're there? You can also do it as part of whatever they've turned up with, but actually opportunistic stuff. Now, there's an idea. You can have it for free. I've never been able to do that project, but I would love to if it was possible. So nice one to end on. Really good ideas about thinking about emergency medicine as part of a patient and population health promotion tool. So December will come and go quickly. I hope you have a fabulous Christmas or whichever festival you choose to celebrate. And we will see you again in the new year. Have a good time. Bye.